0: We live in troubled times, don't we? How's that for an understatement? I mean, around the world, war is being waged. There are entire countries in rebellion. Instability, violence simmer below the surface in many places and, and erupt outright in a lot of places. Even in our own country, there's a, there's a sense of, of unrest, of dissatisfaction political division on a level we haven't seen in, in years. And everywhere we go, I don't know if you've noticed, it It seems like everywhere I go, everyone I talk to, the conversation always turns to the economy. I mean, something to do with the economy, these last couple weeks, last three weeks or so, we've, we've had our eye on the gasoline prices. Man, what's going to happen with that? I mean, how can we stay ahead? How can we how we, we keep up when the cost of things keep going up? Some time ago, somebody sent me an email, one of those email forwards. And we all know how great those are, um, so I can't vouch for the accuracy of this, but it it does it did provide an interesting perspective, I think, on on, on the cost of gas. It said this: a half liter bottle of Dasani water cost a dollar nine cents. That's eight dollars and twenty five cents a gallon. A 20-ounce bottle of Gatorade costs $1.79. That's $11.45 a gallon. An 8-ounce bottle of Pepto-Bismol. Do they still make that? (laughs) That's the pink stuff, right? Pepto-Bismol, 8-ounce bottle, $3.99. $63.84 a gallon. Uh, And a 6-ounce bottle of NyQuil. Cost four dollars and ninety-nine cents. hundred and six dollars and forty-five cents a gallon. I and you know, I I guess we shouldn't complain about the cost of gas and be glad we don't have to fill up on NyQuil. Or we could drink a gallon of NyQuil and then we wouldn't care what we paid for gas, right? <laughs> fill her up. <laughs> fill up his too. But beyond all that's going on in the world around us, some of us are suffering physical pain and loss. I mean, we have folks among us who've lost people they love just in the the last year or so. Some of us are struggling to hang on to jobs or, or even to find a job. Some of us are having to fight to keep relationships together. Others of us are going through some other kind of struggle that makes life seem like it's just spinning way out of control. Well, for the last three weeks, we've been talking about why Jesus did it. Why did Jesus do things, do the things that He did in the way that He did them? And we've looked at why He came and lived as one of us to, to communicate to us what we needed, the relationship we needed to have with God, and the, and the, and the, and the, and the, the means in the way to our salvation. We talked about why he had to die on the cross as as an expression of God's perfect justice and mercy and grace. And then last week we we looked at what it means to us that a dead man lives again, that Jesus is alive, and how that changes everything, everywhere, forever. Forever. So this morning is a way of kind of pulling it all together, helping us understand, get our heads around the unspeakable blessings, the the rich blessings that are ours because Jesus did what he did. I want to go back to something that has, a theme that has weaved its way through all three of the previous messages, something that we've touched on in each of the messages in this series. Turn over in your Bible, if you will, uh, to the Gospel of John. That's John's account of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Fourth book in your New Testament, if you've got a Bible with you this morning. Here's the bottom line. I want to bottom line this thing right off the bat. Jesus did the things that he did in the way that he did them, not because we had made mistakes that needed to be corrected. Jesus did what he did, the way that he did it, not because you know, we needed to make a few changes. Jesus did what He did the way that He did it, not because we needed a do-over. Jesus did what He did the way that He did it, because we were dead. We were dead. And we needed not renovation, not redecoration. We needed life. It's all. By the time you get to John chapter 13, the followers of Jesus are really going through a difficult time. I mean, troubled times seem to be following them around. Jesus is getting ready to to leave them. He's just a few hours away from being arrested at this point, and He wants to give them some instruction. He he wants to give them some, some comfort, so He calls them all together, calls His followers, His closest followers together for a meal, a final meal together on the night before He's arrested. Jesus knows that they're about to experience a roller coaster of emotions, and that there's going to be um, there's going to be confusion and fear and discouragement, and then that's going to give way to elation and uh, and ecstasy and energy, uh, and, and so He's trying to prepare them. And so when chapter 13 opens, Jesus does something very unusual. He wraps a towel around his waist and he takes a basin of water and he begins to wash his followers' feet. And it was awkward. Can you imagine? I mean, it just didn't feel right, didn't seem right. Jesus my teacher my rabbi my master washing my feet that's not right in fact you know this is the this is the job this is this is household servant 101 this is the entry level servant position to wash the feet of the guests it seems humiliating for Jesus to do that but Jesus is preparing them Because in just a little little over 12 hours, he's going to be humiliated. He's going to serve them to the point of dying. So it's all preparation. But there's another reason this is awkward. According to Luke, they had just been arguing about something Jesus' followers had. They'd been arguing about who was the greatest. Can you imagine having that conversation in the presence of Jesus? Who started it, you think? I don't, uh, yeah, I don't know who started it. Probably one of the tax collectors. They're, they're lowlifes anyway. They probably started it. I apologize if you work for the IRS. I apologize that you work for the IRS. We so put it like that. Which one of us is the greatest, you think? Uh, how about the man with the towel in the basin of water? How's that for an expression of greatness? It was awkward. Then they're they're eating, they're enjoying their meal together, and Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to give me over to the very men who want to kill me. And you notice that it makes them all nervous? I mean, we like to think that we would have said, oh, well, it's not going to be me. But for them, it was a question. Lord, is it me? They knew what they were capable of. Made them nervous. Jesus tells them he's going to leave them. In, in verse 33, in John 13, he says, dear children, I, I, will, I will be with you only a little longer. And while they're still trying to process that, Jesus predicts that that Peter, the top follower, I mean the the leader among the group, other than Jesus, that that he is going to to deny even knowing Jesus when a little bit of pressure is put on him. Man, what a night. I mean, think about it. They're confused and they feel strange when Jesus washes their feet. They're troubled by the news. It makes them nervous to think that one of them is a traitor and could it possibly be me? They're devastated at the thought of their Lord, their master, this man they've given their lives to the last three years, going away. And they just can't believe that the original rock, way before Dwayne Johnson, that he's going to deny knowing Jesus, turn his back on him. These are troubled times. And that's the background for what Jesus is about to say in chapter 14, because Jesus brings himself and brings life into their troubled times. He brings life to them in the midst of this situation when they are afraid and confused and don't know what to do. Let's look at John chapter 14. We'll read verses 1 through 6. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Look at how Jesus brings himself, brings life into that troubled situation. First of all, Jesus gives peace. Peace. He knows they're upset. That's why he says to them, don't be troubled. And that that word troubled means to be stirred up and distracted and agitated. Hey, can I get a witness? You ever felt that way? It means to be filled with dread. And fear. It means someone who has lost all sense of perspective, and they uh, they've lost any sense of peace they might have felt. And that what is happening, what's generating inside of them, is just a constant state of turmoil and anxiety and worry and fear. And it's into all that that Jesus says, "Don't let your hearts be troubled." Now I'm glad I'm glad Jesus kept on talking there, because if that was all he said. That would just tick me off. Haven't you had those conversations with people where you kind of pour out your heart, kind of let your guard down a little bit, draw the curtain a little bit and and reveal, boy, I'm really struggling with this. And they pat your hand and say, ah, it's going to be okay. Oh, don't you worry. I mean, isn't that how you feel? They're talking like they don't have a clue. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. And if that's all he had said, oh, well, thanks, Jesus. That makes me feel so much better. Don't let my heart be troubled. Okay. It's easy to say to someone who's frightened and confused and troubled, but how are they supposed to do that? Well, the answer is found in what Jesus said next. Trust in God. Trust also in me there's another building block right there. There's Jesus again saying, hey, I am God. You've trusted Him. You've grown up. This religion, this, this, this lifestyle, this ethnicity that you've embraced tells you that there is one God. You trust in Him, trust in me. You can trust in me the same way you trust in God. Later on in this chapter... And in, in verse 27, Jesus says, I, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart, and the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give, so don't be troubled or afraid. The only way to have peace in troubled times is to trust in Jesus Christ. That's it. Secondly, Jesus tells them about a place. For believers, for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, death is not the great unknown. Death is not a journey, a scary journey into something that we don't know about. We are assured that there is a place where we will go to be with the Lord. Again, in verse 2, there is more than enough room in my Father's home. Jesus says, if that weren't the case, I wouldn't have told you I was going to prepare a place for you there. And maybe you're looking at a translation or you're familiar with a translation that says something like, in my Father's house are many mansions. What Jesus is saying, he's not talking about size. He's not talking about opulence or luxury. He's talking about a permanent dwelling place. Remember, he's talking to people that are really just a few generations away from a very nomadic lifestyle. People who had uh, it, it, you know, hundreds of years before that been, had to wander all over the, the, the uh, wilderness for 40 years. Even in, now in, the, in the, the, the town, the home that they considered to be their own, a, a foreign government is in control telling them what to do in charge of how they live. And Jesus is saying, I, I'm going to prepare you a place, you a dwelling place, a permanent place where you can live and dwell. We're heading to a place that will last forever. Too often we think of this as the land of the living. And we think that when we die, we're going you know, to the land of the dead. But the truth is just the opposite. This is the land of death and dying. And when we leave this place, we're going to a place where we will never die a place of eternal life. And for the believer, it will be a place of eternal joy in the presence of God. For the unbeliever, it will be a place of eternal torment, the torment of knowing that we are separated from God forever. But everybody lives forever in one place or another. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. He was using language they were very familiar with in that day. No internet, no phones, no way to make advance reservations when they traveled. So very often if you had a servant, you would send them ahead of you into the town where you were going. Uh, or if you, couldn't, you didn't have a servant, maybe you could afford to pay someone and they would leave a couple of days ahead of you and they would make provision for you in the places where you were going to be traveling. Jesus says, I'm I'm, I'm going ahead. I've got to leave you, but one of the reasons is I'm going ahead to prepare a place for you. The reservation's already been made. The rooms are ready for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Hey, heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. It's not something that we hope we might get into. That way, well, you know, maybe the the good will outweigh the bad and I'll get a shot at it. It's a prepared place for prepared people. It's a place where we are going to go. and Because of that, we can have peace in troubled times. And then Jesus makes a promise. It's in verse 3. When everything's ready, I'll come back and get you so that you will always be with me where I am." Jesus says, I've just told you about the place that I'm prepared for you, that I'm preparing for you, but I'm not just telling you about it. I'm not just giving you a map. I'm making you a promise that I'm going to come back to you and take you to be with me where I am forever. Hey, that's Jesus' personal guarantee that if we put our faith in him, we will be with him forever. It's his promise. And the, you know what? The Bible is full of promises that God has made, and not one of them has ever been broken. Psalm 145 verse 13 says, the Lord always keeps his promises. He is gracious in all he does. Jesus has made us a promise. When everything's ready, when the, when the, when the time is right, I'm going to come back and get you. You know, not to chase a rabbit too far off the trail, but I got time. You know, from the time Jesus ascended back into heaven, back to the Father, His followers were always waiting and expecting Him to come back very soon. You can't read Peter's writing. You can't read Paul's writing. You can't read John's writing without seeing that they were expecting Him right then. From time to time, someone will ask me, do you believe that we're living in the end times? Well, yes, I do. And I believe we've been in the end times for 2,000 years. If they were expecting it, I mean, they were soon. It, was, it wasn't something far off in the future for them. They expected it to happen soon. And that was 2,000 years ago. How should we feel about it today? It can happen any time, any moment. So you know what we do as human beings? We specialize in this. We misread signs. Have you seen the billboards that judgment day begins May 21st 2011? I'll bet you $1000 it don't. We misread the signs. Jesus says, when everything's ready, then I'm going to come back. Not a minute before and not a minute later than that. Okay, I probably should move on. Somebody's going to throw a Jack Van MP tape at me if I don't keep moving. All right. Number four. Jesus provides a plan. It's obvious the disciples don't get it. Okay? They, they just they, they don't get it. I mean, what, what in the world is Jesus talking about? And, you know, it's like I said a few weeks ago, they, they kind of bluff their way through. Oh, yeah, okay, that. Yeah, you're going somewhere. Yeah, we know all about that. Peter's the, uh, uh, Thomas is the only one to speak up. And poor old Thomas gets a bad rap, doesn't he? What do we call him? We don't even say Thomas, Doubting Thomas. I'd just like to have to carry that around with you for the the rest of history, the rest of human history. You can't just be Thomas. You can't just be, you know, uh, one of the twins. You're the doubter. But you know what he was? He was the only one willing to ask the question. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How, How in the world do we know where you're going? We don't know. He was searching. He was looking for answers. He wasn't afraid to ask questions. We shouldn't be either. Jesus tells him in verse 6, I am the way. You want to know how to get where I'm going? I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, please listen very carefully to what I'm going to say. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. There is no plan but the man, the person, Jesus Christ. There is no way to get to heaven unless we go through him. Now, that's a strong statement, but it's true. People say, how can you say that? I didn't say it. Jesus did. And you know what? Jesus is both inclusive and exclusive. He's he's inclusive in the sense that every person in the world is invited to a relationship with him. Every person in the world. In John six thirty seven, Jesus says that whoever comes to me, I will not turn away. I will not drive away. And and in First Peter, we read that. The reason that Jesus has not come back yet, remember He's not coming until everything's ready. But Peter also says it's because God is patient and He doesn't want anyone to be lost. So He's waiting. He's waiting. But Jesus is also exclusive in the sense that there is no other way to get to heaven except through Him. Jesus lived in a time that was filled with paganism, filled with with different religions. And in the midst of all that religious diversity, the Bible over and over again makes some very plain, clear statements that blow up the idea that all roads lead to heaven. Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate.
1: The highway to hell
0: is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. And then Peter, we didn't read this verse last week, but in that trial that he was in, as far as he knew for his life before the the, the religious officials of the day, he declares to them that Jesus is the way. He says there is salvation in no one else. God has given no under name under heaven by which we must be saved. 20 or 30 years later, Paul would write this to Timothy, for there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. And then John would say in 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have God's son does not have life. It's all about life. Jesus makes us choose. Jesus makes us choose. And the, the choice is overwhelmingly obvious. Either the Bible lies or Jesus is the only way to heaven. That's our choices. We're not saved by religion. We're not saved by good works. We're not saved by our name on a church membership list. We're saved by a person. Hey, Jesus didn't say he knew the way. He said he was the way. Jesus didn't say he he knew about the truth, that he could teach us the truth. He said, I am the truth. Jesus didn't say, I can show you how to have life. He said, I am the life. He declared himself to be the way, the truth. In the life, he's not just showing the way. Jesus is the way. He is the way. I heard a story about a missionary traveling through a, a remote uh, uh, j- to a remote village through the jungle, and and the missionary was unfamiliar with how to get there, so he hired a, go- a guide to take him. And when they they started out, the trail was nice and broad and well marked. But the further they traveled, the the less you could see of a trail. And eventually, he could see no trail at all. And he asked his guide. I mean, the guide was chopping their way through the vines and thick undergrowth with a machete. And the missionary got all nervous. And he said, hey, what happened to the trail? And the guide said, I am the trail. He knew the way. Just follow him. He knows the way. Jesus is the one who is the way. If we will follow him. He will lead us. Jesus is the truth. Now, truth is used a couple different ways in Scripture. It's used the way we normally think of it. It's used um, to talk about something that's true compared to something that's false, like like words or an idea or a statement that someone might make. But it's also used to compare something genuine with something that is fake, So Jesus wasn't just saying, I know true words. I'm telling you the truth. He was saying, I am true. I am authentic. I'm trustworthy. I'm the real deal. When we meet Jesus, we're face to face with reality. Because in the Bible, truth is not just something intellectual. It's not just a decision that we make in our minds to, to decide or believe that something is true. In the Scripture, truth has a practical dimension to it. Jesus talked about doing the truth. In John chapter 3, verse 21, He said, He who practices the truth comes to the light, comes to God, moves in God's direction. A researcher named George Barna has... Uh, done several studies on this, and he's found out that about three-fourths of Americans do not believe in absolute truth. That is, they they do not believe that there is truth that is always objectively true and does not change. And what's sad about that is that without a base of truth, without some, some, some absolute standards as a foundation, all we're left with is whatever seems right at the time. All we're left of, with is whatever feels good or whatever is easiest or whatever makes us happy at the moment. But Jesus stands above all the confusion in our culture, all the, the discussion and the confusion over what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. And He declares, I am the truth. And if you get to know me, you will cut through all the clutter and you'll find something that's authentic and real and trustworthy. Something you can stake your life on. It's all about life. That's why Paul could write in the book of Hebrews that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Jesus is the way. He's the truth. Jesus is the life. Again, in John's gospel, that that word life doesn't just describe existence. doesn't just describe being conscious and able to draw breath. It describes the relationship that we have with God. When we have life, we're related to God. When we are dead, we are not related to God. We are separated from Him. We're dead without Him. We only live and we're only alive when we surrender ourselves to Him. John 5, 24, one of my favorite passages. In all of Scripture, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God, believe in God who sent me, have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins. They will never be condemned for their sins. If you're a believer, say, I will never be condemned for my sins but they have already passed from death into life. It's all about life. Jesus is life. He is the life. And, and, and we only find meaning in our own lives when we surrender ourselves to Him so that He can live His life through us. John chapter 1, verse 4 says, The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. Jesus is life itself. He's not an add-on. He's not an extra. He is our life. because, And we need that because we were dead. And when you're dead, the only thing you need is life. Three ways. I want to close out with this. I want to give you three, I think, practical ways we can... Put this powerful truth to work in our own lives. In the first place, the place we have to start is putting our faith in Jesus. He's the only way. Jesus said, no one can come to the Father except through me. And that word except means that apart from Jesus, there's no way for us to be saved. We can't get there by trusting in ourselves, by trusting in our own strength, by trusting in our ability. The only way to get there is through Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18 says Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned. But he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. I love that idea. Bring you safely home. Thomas had those doubts and questions. If you remember, when Jesus, after he rose from the dead, when he appeared to his followers the first time, Thomas was not there. He, you know, we know they went fishing. We know they went back to their old jobs. Maybe Thomas was hunting a job. But for whatever reason, he wasn't there. And When he got back, they told him, we've seen Jesus. He's alive. He was here. Thomas. man, how strong, you know, we call him doubting Thomas, but how strong do you have to be to look 10 other people in the face and say, I don't believe you. What was that conversation like? You know we don't get all of it in Scripture, right? John said if we wrote down everything that happened while Jesus was on earth, there wouldn't be enough books to contain all of it. So, with some, so some stuff gets left out. And I don't know about you, but I fill that stuff in. <laughs> what was that conversation like? Hey, Peter, you, you took off. I mean, you, you denied you even knew his name. And the rest of you, what happened to you? You went and hid. You went and hid behind locked doors, scared to death, afraid somebody was going to kill you. John, you were the only one that hung around out there. But I'm sorry. I don't believe you. I think Thomas was a lot stronger than we give him credit for. He said, I won't believe until I put my hands in the places where they put the nails, where they pierced his side. Now, he'd gone from being confident to being cocky because Jesus showed up. He said, here you go, big boy. And what did Thomas do? He fell to his knees. My Lord, my God. Can you say the same thing? My Lord, my God. Let's put our faith in Jesus. The second thing, we need to tell others about Jesus. Now listen carefully to to what I'm going to say. We do not have to make Jesus more attractive to people. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He stands on His own. We don't have to dress Him up. We don't have to sell Him to anybody. We just have to tell other people about Him. We just have to point them to Jesus, and He'll take care of the rest. He's the truth. He can stand up to examination. He can stand up to investigation. We just tell. And I'll tell you what. We need to lose our arrogant, mean, prideful attitude when we're telling people about Jesus. It doesn't win anybody. It never won a soul. There are people out there who don't have the same understanding of truth as we do. Again, our job is to be loving and patient and kind with people who aren't where we are yet. There's not anything uglier than somebody who's beaten somebody else over the head with how right they are. Do you remember um, several months ago we were talking about Paul defending his ministry before the elders uh, of the church? And James says, we should not make it difficult for these Gentiles to put their faith in Christ. Just share Jesus. Just share Jesus. Just point the way to Jesus. You don't have to to be able to answer 50 objections that somebody might have. You don't have to be able to correct every cult or world religion that's out there. All you have to do is point to Jesus. And that makes this last point that I want to make so important. Here's the third thing that we do. Let Jesus live through our life. Let Jesus live through us. That's, That's how it's set up. It's how it's supposed to be designed. That Jesus lives through us. That when, we, when we're spending our money or our time or we're interacting with uh, our spouses or our children or conducting business or on our jobs or out in the community, Jesus is supposed to be living through us. Let Him live through us. Let Him be seen by others in the way we live. Nobody should have to guess whether we're a believer or not. I'm not saying, you know, you don't have to have the t-shirt. You don't have to have the bumper sticker. right? You don't have to carry the biggest honking Bible you can find. Just just let Jesus live through you. Jesus is the way to God, so we put our faith in Him. Jesus is is the truth, so we share that truth. If If we know something that is awesome, we share it with other people. Whether it's a movie or a place to eat or a book we've read, we share that with other people. Jesus is the truth. Share him with other people. And Jesus is the life, so let him live his life through each one of us. That's how life can make sense in troubled times. That's how that works. That's how Jesus can say, hey, stop letting your hearts be stirred up. Don't be troubled. You trust in God. You trust in me the same way. It's a choice. Jesus is is a way that must be followed. He's a truth that has to be believed and shared, and He's a life that has to be lived. The way brings us to God. The truth makes us free, and the life rescues us from death. We're brought from darkness into light. The life is what we need. Life is what Jesus is all about. And life is why Jesus did what he did. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.